0: A man came to the village chief to complain about his brother, saying, Chief, I'm about to kill my brother because he has offended me seriously. I can't tolerate him anymore. I know if I kill him, you will put me in prison. What should I do? The chief looked at him carefully to find out who this young man was. Oh, I remember who you are. You are the young man who was almost killed by a wolf a while back. Am I right? He said, yes. Please tell me about that incident, the chief asked. Well, I returned to the village from work and discovered a vicious wolf followed me. So I ran and quickly climbed up the tree. I had to stay up on the tree all night until the wolf eventually left in the morning. Really, the chief exclaimed, what did you do to the wolf after that? Did you try to hunt for it and kill it? No, I didn't do anything. I'm just glad that he didn't kill me. Interesting, the chief thought. The wolf tried to kill you, but you don't seem to be as angry as when your brother offended you. The man stayed silent, and after a while, he felt enlightened and left. End of the story. There is another parable by Johnson. The story doesn't reveal the conclusion because it is for you to figure out the hidden wisdom. What would you do if you were in that situation? The truth is, sometimes we treat animals better than humans. We seem more patient with wild animals than our silly brothers and sisters, maybe because we expect more from humans. The story stimulates a realization that we have better choices than revenge. With some effort, we can tame the wildest animals, even huge elephants. In the same way, with some social intelligence, God expects us to create harmony with fellow human beings. We live in a fallen world and must deal with fallen people. Human relationship is always messy, but God wants us to bring harmony out of the mess. Jesus, God brought order from the chaos, as described in Genesis, It's called social intelligence or relational intelligence. God created us in his image. When we bring order out of chaos, we exercise God's image and make God happy. The human mission is to create order out of chaos. And God promises to reward us abundantly when we attain and maintain harmony with one another. King David wrote, See how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. That is where the Lord promised the blessing of eternal life. Psalm 113 verses one and three. Jesus also said, again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them, Matthew 18, 19 to 20. That means if you can figure out how to live in harmony with fellow human beings, you will be blessed with a ticket to eternity. Your prayers will be answered and you will experience the presence of God. In other words, you will find fulfillment if you exercise social intelligence. So today we will look at how to develop social intelligence through Jesus' teaching, based on this week's scripture lesson. Let's begin. Hi, in case we haven't met yet, I'm Sam Stone, the light keeper. You are the light of the world and I'm the keeper. No pun intended. It's my calling to help you shine your brightest so that God is glorified in you and you are satisfied in God. The scripture lesson for today is from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Listen to the word of the Lord. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have gained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you Would be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am among them. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Blessed are those who delight in God's word. Thanks be to God. At a glance, this passage sounds like Jesus is giving us a formula for conflict resolution. But when we put this passage in context, it turns out to be much deeper than mere conflict resolution. It's about social intelligence. This passage can be easily misinterpreted to justify excommunication or ostracizing bad actors in the church. However, the immediate context prompts us to interpret this passage differently and more profoundly. So let's look at the context first. Chapter 18 begins with the disciples approaching Jesus and asking him, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus gave them an object lesson. He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 2-4. Here, Jesus reveals that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the humblest. Note that Jesus says, become like children. It's an attainment. He equates spiritual maturity to childlikeness. He is not asking us to dumb down, but to realize that we are born great, which can only be appreciated after we have explored other options. T.S. Eliot famously wrote, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started, and know the place for the first time. Life is a journey to the beginning. Then Jesus demands the disciples to be kind to the little ones, meaning those who are young in faith and new to the community, those who may be struggling with stupid things because they are far behind you on the journey. He then said, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. That's profound. When you welcome those who have just started out on the journey, you welcome the Lord. Jesus cares about them so much that he made this even more intense comment next. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drawn in the depth of the sea. Verse 6. Jesus is not talking about a harsh punishment to those who put a stumbling block to the spiritually immature, but revealing that they are doing something more regrettable than fasting a millstone around the neck and killing themselves in the deep sea. Why? They fail to exercise their social intelligence to bring harmony from chaos. In other words, they perpetuate chaos and make things worse. Jesus used the same phrase, stumbling block, at Peter when Peter rebuked Jesus for revealing that he would be crucified. I covered the story in detail in last week's message. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Matthew 16:23. Based on what Jesus said here, Being a stumbling block is being Satan. Remember, Satan or Satan in Hebrew is a verb meaning to oppose, to entide, and to be adversarial. Mainly, anyone trying to counter God's plan is a Satan. Just as Satan contradicts God's plan for Jesus by tempting him to seek worldly success rather than fulfilling the divine dream. When we put a stumbling block on a fellow believer, we are making a big mistake. We are sataning. Then Jesus reveals that God is watching over everyone on their spiritual journey. He says, Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven, their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. Verse 10. Sometimes we could develop spiritual arrogance or spiritual pride when we are ahead of others on the spiritual journey. The Pharisees were good examples. They were so proud of their piety that they despised others, such as the Gentiles and tax collectors. Here, Jesus once said, Everyone on the spiritual journey has an angel reporting to God. So don't think just because you know better you could despise other. The angels are reporting their progress to God. That means God has assigned an angel to watch over your journey as well. Then Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep to illustrate God's care for those on their spiritual journey. He said, what do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. Verses 11 to 14. This parable is countercultural or counterintuitive. Especially verse 13, which says, And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. You might wonder, if God rejoices more in finding the lost, does it mean God loves the ninety-nine less than he loves the lost? No, of course not. The point of the parable is that God doesn't want anyone to be left behind, a lost sheep compromise harmony. A hundred is a complete number. 99 indicates something's lacking and incomplete. God rejoices for the completeness and harmony. With this context in mind, we can now correctly interpret the passage for the day. Jesus said, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. Verse 15. Jesus is talking about another member of the church. That means he's someone on the journey, equivalent to the little ones Jesus mentioned in the context. And he's also equivalent to the lost sheep in the parable. We don't know how he sinned, but Jesus compares him to the one that went astray. His divergence compromised wholeness and harmony of the herd. Jesus wants you to point out his fault, not confrontationally, but with the spirit of gaining him back and restoring harmony. Remember that God cares about the lost. Sometimes a sheep can fall so deep into a gutter beyond one person's ability to retrieve it then Jesus provides the next step in the procedure to restore harmony. He says, But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 16. That is in line with the Old Testament law. You need two or three witnesses to prove someone is wrong. You need to bring those who are fair and spiritually mature, not just those who will side with you. Remember, this chapter starts with Jesus teaching them humility. We need to be humble even if we are right. That reminds me of when Jesus was on trial. They tried him quickly at night without allowing witnesses to testify for him. Obviously, their purpose was to kill Jesus, not to gain Jesus back. They act according to their spiritual arrogance. They should fast a millstone on their neck and kill themselves in the deep sea. Anyway, the context reveals that this procedure should not be followed to punish people, but to regain them and restore harmony out of chaos. Then Jesus provides the third step, if both the first and second should fail. He says, if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 17. That's where the interpretation often falls apart. Some churches excommunicate or ostracize people when this third-level reconciliation fails. We need to treat the Gentiles and tax collectors the way Jesus did. The Bible says Jesus was a friend of Gentiles and tax collectors. So from Jesus' perspective, treating them as Gentiles and tax collectors means maintaining hope in them as redeemable and waiting for them to return but not permanently giving up on them. For Jesus, no one is irredeemable. Then Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Matthew 18:18. 18, 18. Jesus made a similar statement in the Gospel of John after giving the disciples the Holy Spirit. Its meaning is profound. Jesus gives you the power to send people to hell and teaches you to never use that power. You must forgive people, not because you have no choice, but because you choose love over vengeance. Just Jesus asked Peter on the night of his arrest to put his sword in its sheath, he wants you to choose love and harmony despite wielding the lethal weapon to do the opposite. That makes your love real. Jesus himself has the authority to send us to hell, but he chose to go to the cross to redeem us and to bring us home and restore the heavenly harmony. We also should use our power like that. Then Jesus gives you two promises here for choosing love and maintaining harmony. He says again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where the two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. Verses 19 to 20. The first promise is that he will answer your prayer when you maintain harmony. The second is he will be with you when you maintain harmony. Why? As I said in the beginning, You exercise God's image when you create harmony out of chaos. That's social intelligence. God loves those who behave like him. Jesus wants you to create harmony out of chaos. That's our mission, and let's live it. And you will be blessed with your prayers answered and God's presence with you. That's it for today. I hope you find this message illuminating as much as I enjoy receiving it from the head office. Until we meet again, keep your light shining brighter and broader and harvest the fruit of profound freedom, purpose, and happiness. Amen. Bye now.